Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 23. We're actually going to begin in chapter 22, starting at verse 66. But then we're going to focus ourselves on verses 13 through 25 of Luke chapter 23. As we're coming up on Easter, it's good for us to remember precisely what we're celebrating. What it is that God has done for His people in sending Jesus. So beginning at verse 66, this is speaking now of uh, Jesus being in captivity, having been arrested uh, and now facing the Sanhedrin or the council of the Jewish elders. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves with his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arraying him in a, a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary that, uh, for him to release one of them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas! who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. 
but he delivered Jesus to their will. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord through Christ. The passage we've just read details the greatest travesty of justice that mankind has ever witnessed. Never has there been a man more inherently righteous, more pervasively holy than Jesus. The evidence of his innocence was absolutely overwhelming, even to utter unbelievers. And yet he was sentenced to death, even as a man convicted of serious crimes was released. Nothing about that situation was just. Nothing about it was excusable. And yet, in that miscarriage of justice, God's justice was firmly established so that we could be freed. That's important for us in several respects. Above all, it's important because this account is the heart of the gospel, written in letters of flesh and blood. Here we see how God worked it so that He could pardon those who were guilty of sin. Here we see the cost of God reconciling us to Him and restoring us from death to life. And at the same time, we see a vivid lesson about where we find and where we must find our hope. The men in this account, they were a poor place to set one's hope. They did everything wrong. The leaders of the state, the leaders of the church, the crowd themselves who were God's people, who had received the sign and seal of His covenant, all of them failed at the most crucial times to uphold what is right and what is good. To put one's hope in men like this is to have no hope at all. But on the other hand, God was using a situation that was quite dark in order to bring the light of life into all the world. Things are not always as they seem. And that's wonderful for us to remember right now. During this time of uncertainty, this time in which we don't know what will happen with the spread of the coronavirus or what will happen with our economy or what will happen with our leaders or what will happen with the social distancing and the self-quarantines. God is in control. And God doesn't just do what is acceptable or what is passable. God does what is absolutely perfect for the well-being of His people both here and now and for eternity. And we see that as we see how the rebels' release required the suffering of our Savior. And that's the theme that we see in this text. The rebels' release required the Savior's suffering. And we see that first in the demonstration of our Savior's innocence, which is the first point we see in verses 13 through 16. Recall for a moment the the events that led up to this text. Jesus was arrested after His time of praying in the garden. He was led back after being beaten and mocked a bit by the authorities. He was led back where He was tried by the Jewish council, but it was a mock trial. We learn from Mark 14 and Matthew 26 that a number of false witnesses prompted by the council rose to testify against him. But so false was their testimony, they couldn't get two of them to agree on anything. They were striking out until finally they asked Jesus directly, Are you then the Son of God? And to that, he answered plainly that he was. 
He admitted under oath that he regarded himself as being fully divine. And at that, they determined that he must die, that there was no remedy for what they regarded as this utter and complete blasphemy. So they took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, because they had no power to put someone to death. And therefore, Pilate had to examine him to give his version of a trial. And there followed his trial and then a trial by Herod who ruled over the region of Galilee to the north. And then, and then Jesus was brought back to Pilate and he was led out in front of the crowd that the Roman governor might render his judgment. And that's the text we have before us. The proceeding is public, not just the chief priests and the elders of the people, but the people at large were welcome to gather before Pilate as he sat upon his judgment throne and rendered his verdict. He starts by recounting the crimes that were alleged against Jesus. Verse 14, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Now, to our American ears, that sounds, well, not so bad. We're sort of accustomed to free speech, aren't we? And we've grown a bit cynical. You watch three or four different news channels, you see how the various media report the same event, and you see such radically different demonstrations of bias that we're accustomed to people misleading the people. But it's bigger than that. Not only did they not really have free speech the way we understand it, but this was an accusation of inciting insurrection in the start of the chapter we read that Jesus is accused of three things. He's accused of perverting the nation, which is to say urging the people to rebel. He's accused of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which is a specific act of rebellion. And he's accused of claiming to be Christ the King, which is essentially saying he was setting himself up in opposition to Caesar. All of these things were alleged against Jesus in his misleading of the Jewish people. He would, was urging them to rebel, forbidding them to pay taxes, and claiming to be a king, an alternative to Caesar. That's what they claimed. We know that those charges were all false, but that's what they alleged. And that's what Pilate was seeking to determine. Are these charges true or false? So he tells them, I examined the man publicly. You're, you Jewish leaders, you were there. You accused him. You were involved in the proceedings. Luke declines to mention it, but Pilate also interviewed Jesus privately. He was able to interact a bit with Jesus. And while it was unsettling to Pilate, it convinced him that he was, in fact, no threat to Rome or to its power. And so the governor's conclusion, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. He doesn't go quite so far as to say that Jesus is innocent. But legally speaking, he acknowledges that there is no cause to punish this man. There is no cause to find him guilty. Before bringing that conclusion, however, Pilate recounts Jesus' second trial. Having heard that Jesus was a Galilean and being the consummately political figure that he was, Pilate saw a potential out. Herod! happened to be in town. This would be Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. And because of the way the Roman laws worked, and because Jesus was a Galilean, 
and much of his teaching had happened in Galilee, Pilate saw that he could potentially get rid of the problem by sending him to Herod. Then Herod could render a judgment. And the wrath or the pleasure of the Jews could fall on him. So he did. And Herod questioned him. Receiving no answer from Jesus, Herod mocked him, beat him, but sent him back. But the point, says Pilate, is that Herod, too, found Jesus to perhaps be a nuisance, but not one worthy of death, not one worthy of condemnation, all of which leads to Pilate's verdict. The leaders of the Jews had demanded that Jesus be put to death for the crimes that he had committed. But now Pilate declares there were no crimes. He's done nothing worthy of sentencing. And therefore he would chastise Jesus. He would administer a punishment, probably by a whip, but certainly far less than death. And then he would release the man. Notice this. Notice this. Something of Pilate's essential character is revealed here, and it's not pretty. Yes, he recognized that he couldn't sentence Jesus to death, and that's a glimmer of hope. But what we see about Pilate, he found no guilt in Jesus. There was no evidence that Jesus had done anything wrong. Clearly, the accused man, the falsely accused man, should have been released immediately. But instead, Pilate opted to punish Jesus before releasing him. Granted, it would be a far less severe punishment than the Jews desired. But, but he was willing to punish an innocent man. And why? Simply to slightly appease the Jews. Simply to stay in their good favor. That shows us that this Pilate... He was not a man of principle, but of pragmatism. He was not a man who stood on his morals, but a man who did whatever he thought would ingratiate him with the people before him. And that lack of principle was Pilate's weakness and the seed of his downfall. Because a principled man, he'll stand firm on his decision regardless of the cost. But a man lacking deep principles, that man can be manipulated. Now, folks, this is not by any means the chief lesson of this text, but, but it's a valuable lesson for us. Those who stand on principle, particularly the principles of God's Word, they can withstand the trials and the snares and the temptations of this world. They can stand because they have a foundation that will never move. But those who fear man instead of God, and those who seek not principle but merely that which will work, they have no solid ground on which to stand. They have no strength. They have no staying power. And therefore, they will be used by the powerful people of this world. That's what happened to Pilate. That's what happens to so many of the power brokers of our age. Promises mean nothing to them unless an election is looming. Long-affirmed principles fall to the side if suddenly something else will benefit them. And we, we whom those leaders are meant to serve, we are the ones who pay the price. And so too it is for us. We, we must not be like Pilate. We must stand on principle. We must stand on truth. Or we will be used for evil even as Pilate was. And in the day of judgment, our innocence will not be found. Well, Pilate... Pilate, he was looking for an out from this situation. That's what was motivating him. This controversy before him was not something he sought. And frankly, it, 
He saw no political upside to it. So he wanted to be done with this situation. And he had just the thing. That's what we see in verse 17. It was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. Pilate recalls that, and he thinks he has an answer for extricating himself from this situation. But it doesn't work out quite the way he planned. And that brings us to our second point, the demand for the Savior's substitution. What we just read in verse 17 there is kind of fascinating. We know from that time and place that it wasn't something ensconced in Roman law. It wasn't a requirement that he release a prisoner. That would be kind of silly, right? To require the periodic release of a prisoner without any real guidelines for why or how that should happen. It was something that Pilate did in order to gain the favor of the people. Because a lot of times the people who were being held, the people who were being punished, the people who were facing death, they weren't, they weren't mass murderers like we sometimes see today. They weren't people who, well, they certainly weren't people who were accused and, and found guilty of minor crimes. Those folks were punished and immediately released. They didn't have the big prison complex that we have today. These would have been people who were political prisoners on the whole, whom the crowds loved. And so by releasing one of them, you became kind of a, a small hero to the people. You released the man that we love, the, the person that we love to follow. And Pilate remembered that Jesus had been popular among the common people. After all, just a week before, they welcomed him into the city with shouts of acclamation. They laid their clothes before him as he entered the town. They loved the man. And Pilate, he was known for loving to tweak the leaders of the Jews. So he thought, if I release Jesus, whom the crowd loves, not only will that ingratiate me, not only will that make me popular with the crowd... But it'll set the crowd against the leaders, and that can't help but work well for me. So that's what he seeks to do. He's going to invoke the Passover pardon to release Jesus, thereby making himself great in the eyes of the crowd. But what Pilate didn't count on was the extent of Jewish solidarity and the depth of man's sin. Barely had he expressed his intent with regard to Jesus then they all cried out at once, says verse 18. Notice the unity the crowd was displaying. That suggests there was probably coordination by the leaders. Perhaps influential men among the crowd had been coached on what to say and when to say it. Perhaps word had spread that this is what you need to do for Israel. But by whatever method, Matthew 27 says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to demand Jesus' death, and to ask the release of another. Does that seem a little surprising to you? I mean, like I just said, just a week before, they, they welcomed Him as the coming King. They acknowledged Him as the Son of David. What happened in that week? Part of what happened is they heard Jesus' teaching. The Jews were desperate to get out from under Roman rule. Part of why they were welcoming him so eagerly to Jerusalem is they were eager for a king to rise up and cast off the shackles of Rome. But over the course of that last week, they found out that's not why Jesus had come. He didn't come 
to lead an armed rebellion against Pilate and his soldiers. He didn't come to establish an earthly here and now kingdom just like those of all the other nations. He came to establish a kingdom that was far greater, that was far more powerful, that was eternal in fact, but that would not necessarily displace the Romans from their position of power. And they didn't like that. Just as significant perhaps, the people were choosing a side. Not only were they a bit disappointed with the message Jesus brought, but, but now they were faced with a choice. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. The leaders of the Jews wanted him to die. Well, Pilate had made no secret of his disdain for the Jews. And fact is, he was a Roman. He was part of the occupying power. So regardless of what the controversy was over, if the choice was between pleasing Pilate and pleasing the Sanhedrin, they were going to choose their fellow Jews every single time. And so they made the demand which the chief priests and the elders had encouraged. Concerning this Passover pardon, they demanded the release of Barabbas. And as for Jesus, put him to death. Now who is this Barabbas? Truth be told, very little has been preserved about him outside of the pages of Scripture. His name is Aramaic. It means, generically enough, son of the father. But the accusations against him were not at all generic. He was accused of leading a rebellion in Jerusalem. He led the people in opposing the ruling power of Rome. He called them to cast off Rome's power as they had hoped Jesus would do. He was also accused of murder. Now, Mark 15 tells us that the murder happened during the rebellion. So it may be that Barabbas was seen actually killing someone. It may be that he was simply accused of murder because he was leading the insurrection. But for whatever reason, it's regarded as proven fact that Barabbas was not only a rebel, but a murderer. And we read elsewhere in the other gospel accounts that he was notorious, he was widely known, and that he was a robber. So clearly, this is not a man known for his godliness. He was a threat to the state, and he led the people down a path that was dangerous. So why demand that Pilate release this guy? Well, as I said, for some, it was less about Barabbas than about opposing the Roman power and supporting the Jews. But it was deeper than that. Ultimately, this was a test of the faith of God's people. What kind of freedom would the people of God prefer? Would they seek after an earthly here and now freedom that would perhaps free them from the taxation and the tyranny of Rome and allow them to be self-ruling? But that would be just like all the other nations of the earth. Or would they seek after a freedom that was greater? A freedom that would restore them and reconcile them to God? A freedom that would last eternally, even though it might not change their physical circumstances right now? And on whom would they trust to bring that freedom? Would they look to the hand of men, to the, the wisdom of men, to the, the plans of men? Or would they look to God? And to the one who came speaking the words of God and doing the works of God and demonstrating the power of God alone. 
Freedom now or freedom eternal. The power of the flesh or the power of the living God. It was a test of faith. And it was a test that God's people resoundingly failed. They chose to trust in mere men. They chose to reject the power and the purpose of God. They chose right now over all of eternity. Folks, don't miss the warning in that. It is so very easy to focus on obtaining here and now peace. The kind of peace that allows you to say or do what you want right now. The kind of peace that comes with a nice salary and a big house. The kind of peace for which we trust in mere men. But that isn't why Jesus came. Oh, sure. Sometimes He gives us that kind of peace. Sometimes He provides prosperity. But sometimes He provides sickness and poverty. And strife and struggle. You see, Jesus gives not as the world gives, but instead He gives what we truly and eternally need. He doesn't look just at what we experience right here and now in the moment. He doesn't look necessarily at the comfort that we experience in this instant. But He looks at what will build us up eternally, what will prepare us to serve Him forever, what will cause us to bear the image of God which we lost in our sin. The natural man in sin has neither the patience nor the vision for seeking after the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It was really predictable that the crowd would reject Jesus. They preferred to follow someone who would fill their wallet and their belly and their mind right now. But the one who called them to repentance and to self-denial and to faith in a coming kingdom... That one they couldn't stand. And therefore they cried out for his death. Seeing who he truly is, the crowd rejected Jesus. Pilate's confused. He tells them again, I find no fault in this man. I find nothing worthy of his death. So I'm going to punish him and release him. And they say, no, crucify him. Crucify him. They don't just want him dead. They want him dead in the most notorious, accursed way known to their society. And folks, our natural impulse is the same. That's what abides in our hearts at the moment of our conception. The knowledge that God exists and that He is holy and that He deserves to be worshipped but also the knowledge that we want nothing to do with Him. We want to be God. We want to sit on the throne. And we would rather serve the creation, even in its brokenness, rather than serve the Creator who is ever blessed. That's what comes natural to the sinful man. And it's only as God works in us and transforms us and ushers us by His power into that eternal kingdom that Christ made. It's only in that way that we can reject that natural desire. And choose after, or choose the eternal kingdom that Christ brought. But the thing is, it's only by choosing Christ. It's only by choosing against the momentary pleasures which, which we crave that we can find true freedom. And that freedom, that true freedom is why Jesus came. And that's what we see in the final section of our text. We see the price Jesus paid to free us, and we see the result of the price that He paid. So our third point is the declaration of the Savior's sentence. Notice at the start of this section, verse 22, how Pilate reiterates 
his belief in Jesus' innocence. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. Now this is the third time he said it in succession. It's actually, if we look at all the gospel accounts together, the fifth time that it's spoken, that Jesus is innocent. And so he demands for the final time, if he's really guilty of something worthy of death, then give me something. I need evidence. I need testimony. I need something that will allow me the cover, the political cover, to sentence this man as you desire. And since you haven't provided it, I'm going to release him after I briefly punish him. But that's not enough for God's people. Not only must Jesus suffer, he must die painfully. As long as Jesus drew breath, they insisted, justice has not been done. And they're determined. They're bloodthirsty. Verse 23 says that they were insistent about their demands. That The verb there is epikamai. It's an interesting verb that means to press upon or impress into. So this is the verb you would use if you're talking about minting coins. And you're pressing the image of the ruler into that coin. You'd use this verb, epikamai. They were pressing into him with their insistence, with their demands. They were pushing him down, grinding him up until finally he felt he had no choice. And remember, this is a man not of principle, but of pragmatism. A man of principle might have withstood them and done what was right. But that wasn't Pilate. And so finally... They give, he gives in. Their insistence was compelling. John 19 tells us that they threatened Pilate. They said, any man who threatens Caesar and is released, that one who releases him can be no friend of Caesar. They're implying, if you let this guy go, we're going to go and tell Caesar that you let an insurrectionist, a rebel, an alternative king, go with just a a minor beating. It was enough for Pilate. He gave in. He condemned Jesus to the death of the cross. But not so for the man whom the crowd sought to save. Barabbas, the man who likely deserved crucifixion, was released. It was an act both just and wicked. Clearly, this was a miscarriage of justice. Pilate had made it abundantly clear that there was no legal basis for punishing Jesus, much less putting him to death. He knew that he was duty-bound to release Jesus, and yet he condemned him to the, the most horrific form of death. That can be termed nothing other than an absolute miscarriage of justice. And yet... In God's sovereignty, it was also an act of of pure justice. How can that be? Well, remember, Pilate was the magistrate, the governor. Romans 13 tells us that no governing power exists except what God has established. And that means that Pilate, though he knew it not, was an agent of God. Actually, by this time he did know it because Jesus told him that. Jesus said, you could have no power over me were it not given to you from above. Pilate was knowledgeably the authority established by God. And so when he condemned Jesus to death, God himself condemned Jesus to death. And that was right because Jesus came to bear the sin for his people. He came to suffer for us 
that we might be blessed. He came to die that we might know life eternal. Ultimately, that was God's act. God who delivered Jesus to their will. Now, please know, ultimately, in the big picture, Jesus was not condemned because of the Jews. He was not condemned because of Pilate. We can't lay the blame at their feet. That's happened in the past, hasn't it? Well, it was those Jews that killed Jesus. They're the ones to blame. But no. Jesus was condemned according to God's eternal purpose and plan. And we're the reason. Barabbas, son of the father, a more generic name could not possibly be found. Barabbas was like us. He was a son of his first father, Adam. A man who knew from the very start the depravity and the brokenness of sin. A man who hated God and who hated man. And who lived his life consistently with that hatred. Yes, Barabbas was worthy of death. Yes, Barabbas was worthy of a curse that showed that he had been cast off from God. And of ourselves, that's exactly what we deserve. My friends, we are in our natural setting. Our natural condition. We are Barabbas. We deserved, every one of us, from the youngest babe to the oldest, most seasoned person. We deserved God's eternal wrath and suffering that would never end. But instead, God sent His Son. The one in whom no guilt could be found. The one who did everything God commanded, avoided everything God condemned, demonstrated the image of God with absolute utmost perfection. He was holy in every way a man could be holy. And yet he was made a curse because of our sin. He suffered and died and was rejected by the Father because of our rebellion. And we, like Barabbas, we are freed. That, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That is the path to life. That is the establishment of the kingdom. And that is the hope that transcends death and fear and doubt and worry and disease and everything else evil and ugly that has arisen from sin. That is the hope that ushers us into a kingdom that is eternal and unending. In this time of uncertainty and struggle in which disease and death loom so very large. We need to think long and hard about how the love of God is so great and the sovereignty of God is so immense. That he could use even this wicked unprincipled ruler and even these wicked and absolutely unthinkable leaders of the Jews. To ensure that His Son would pay precisely the price that would free us from death and usher us into His kingdom in peace. Recognize that He died not as an accident of history, not merely as a miscarriage of justice, but He died to restore us. All of us who place our hope in Him. And therefore let us daily renew our hope, daily set our trust in Christ And live every moment of every day in response to that reality. To God alone, our sovereign King. 
and Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who ushers us into faith, may He receive all the glory now and evermore. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed and overwhelmed at the goodness and the extent of Your grace. And we pray that You would help us to trust in Jesus and in Him alone for all that we need, both now and eternally. We ask, Lord, that You would fill us with Your love and that You would cause us to to turn our entire lives such that we might demonstrate to others what You have done and how comprehensive is that work. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.